0: Welcome to FRT, the IAF podcast on finance, regulation and technology. I'm Brad Carr of the IAF in Washington, and today we're hitting a milestone, episode 100. And we wanted to mark this occasion in style, and who better to join us than Axel Weber? Axel, of course, is the chairman of both the IAF and UBS Group AG. He also holds a number of very prominent international directorships and is very well known from his prior presidency of the Bundesbank and his extensive range of professorships. Axel, it's great to speak with you again, and welcome to FRT. Great to talk to you, Brad. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you. And and maybe to start, if we could talk a bit about COVID conditions today. Obviously, here in the US, uh, we had a fairly rough period earlier on, but we have a, a rising mood of optimism in terms of how the vaccine rollout has progressed. I know I've spoken to a number of your staff at UBS and also to people at the BIS who have been getting their vaccinations over the last two months or so. But interested to hear your sense of, of what's life like uh, on the ground in Zurich and the trajectory that you're seeing.
1: Well, so basically to start uh, with the uh, initial impact, uh, we were, of course, as a global bank, very early on affected by the pandemic, uh, both in our Hong Kong and in our uh, Singapore operations. And as then the whole crisis spread to Europe, our uh, proximity to the north of Italy basically meant that with a lot of cross-border workers, uh, we we did have quite an initial impact also in our operations here in Switzerland, which meant that we were on alert early Uh, we were able within a very few weeks to put more than 90% of our staff work from home. And uh, we had luckily invested around, you know, north of three and a half uh, billion in technology over recent years just to promote working from home and agile working. And that fared well. I mean, had we not done those investments before, uh, we would have scrambled a lot more with the initial impact. So you know, we coped well. Uh, first priority was, of course, the safety of our uh, own staff and of our clients, uh, health concerns. And so we rolled out a very clear program. People uh, still today uh, work, uh, you know, to a large fraction from home. Switzerland is reopening. Uh, so you see restaurants open. Outdoor season, like last summer, is seeing more flexibility. People are returning to office. We do that at a very measured pace. And I would say uh, so far the pandemic, which did have uh, you know, globally an immense toll as you said, uh, so far we at UBS have been navigating that pretty well. And you know our second concern in addition to health uh, and safety for our clients and our employees was really to make sure that the Swiss economy will continue to be uh, funded and we've put a joint program, the banks and the government in place, which actually was copied in quite a few countries, where basically the house bank principle that we have was in charge of funding uh, corporates that found themselves short of cash. And we used our insight into their operation to decide where to put money at work and you know, to kind of mitigate the credit risk. And we did that in a way that you could actually get a very reduced credit form approved within 30 minutes. And that was a major step for a uh, flexibility that we were looking for. And many clients initially took that. Those that didn't need it repaid early, but uh, I think the program helped us with the economy pull along. And there's this duality of measures that you always need. Get the economy to continue to work, you know, secure jobs and the operations, and uh, secure you know, being there for your clients. And, and that worked pretty well for us. I think it's a couple of great examples there that
0: that probably lead to to where I wanted to go next, and that's about where the pandemic has accelerated the process of digitalization. I I often reflect on a comment that Megan Green, Harvard professor, made a couple of years ago about how historically the adoption of technology was at such a lag that the, the PC took 25 years to show up in productivity data because of the human element. And of course, that nexus has been broken, I think, somewhat because we've had this forced adoption. Uh, we've had to start using these work from home technologies and so forth that you mentioned. It's, it's driven the expediting of, of credit approvals. But I guess where we've seen this dramatic acceleration in digitalization, both in our industry and throughout our society, interested in your thoughts
1: of, of what has most stood out for you through that period. As a former central banker, um, I was actually quite impressed how quick payment by cash, uh, which is sort of the major. Payment products central banks produced uh, went out of fashion with clients, and how fast they actually adopted digital means of payments, including mobile apps that we have here in Switzerland. You know, I've been quite conservative in my own payment pattern, and I still have the same banknotes in my wallet that I got from uh, the Cash Point about one and a half years ago. I haven't used cash payments. Uh, and for a former central banker, that's quite a strong statement. So we're starting to see digital means of payments really be adopted at a massive speed and i don't think clients will go back to the old ways there will be a new normal where sort of digital payments will be the norm as opposed to uh you know cash payments Uh, the whole payment cycle has accelerated and uh, with mobile payment you know clients participate in the payment cycle without actually having a bank account Uh, as long as there is a finality and a bank account when you need to settle Ultimately, the removal from digital cash back into physical cash, that will not require bank accounts. It requires a mobile number. And so that's been a major achievement. The second thing that I saw was, uh, you know, we've seen our clients in wealth and asset management predominantly in our branches. In wealth management, uh, it is important to be close to your clients. Now with the pandemic, we are actually in the living rooms of our clients, which is something that sort of with physical uh, engagement we've never achieved. The clients preferred to see us in the office, but the, the, the preferred way was not to see them at home. Now, uh, the digital front end of wealth management becomes a really quality distinguisher on how clients interact with you. And they want your wealth management and your asset management and your retail banking or services to wave seamlessly into their day-to-day living as they do for some of the big techs, whether it's Google, Amazon, uh, or all of these uh, major technology companies. So the whole front end and use of consumer friendliness and ease of use is going to get very, very important uh, for these meetings. And we've seen an increase of virtual client meetings from 30 to 80%, which tells you that the new norm does not involve offices to the same degree as in the past. It doesn't involve client interaction in a physical meeting. It will be a lot more on demand uh, anytime, anywhere. Uh, through any device almost.
0: I think it's a really important point you make there about that differentiator of the, the quality of the client front end. I think maybe if you don't mind me prompting you perhaps on another differentiator, I think, and that's the, the ethical use of data. And we've seen, and there was a BIS report recently highlighting that, that citizens trust their banks with their data more than they trust the government, more than they trust tech firms and the like. And it does strike me that as we see data more at the centre of the economy there is perhaps an opportunity for, for firms like UBS, for firms across our industry that have a good record in how we have stored, protected, transferred, used customer data to be leveraging that also as a really important differentiator. Just wondering if you see that also.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, for us, data and understanding our clients' investment strategy has always been the key choice. But when, when we go to clients as a wealth manager, uh, what is important is not the products we want to offer. What is important is the preferences of the clients in what to invest. We have a, uh, an investment product which basically puts the client at the core. So how we invest and what the client invests will depend on the history of his transaction and his preferences, uh, as opposed to what the bank has to offer. I see banks no longer in, as product providers for investment solutions. I see them as listening to clients and creating solutions around client needs. And the whole, uh, I think, banking has moved from an offer that you provide in a branch or through products to understanding your client. Well, being there for your client and finding solutions that your clients need for their particular situation in life. And these situations differ massively uh, for various clients. It's very different whether you're a young entrepreneur at the starting phase of your investment, Uh, cycle, whether you're a successful entrepreneur or whether you're somebody that is becoming a private citizen by retiring and wanting to look after his pension money and the money that they accumulated over a lifetime. And so onboarding is quite different for different generations as well. We have digital front-ends, but unfortunately, legislation around onboarding is quite different across jurisdiction. Dealing with data is actually something that is very important, but at the same time, the differences in rules and regulations about data privacy and almost data ring fencing just goes to the core of not being able to exploit some of these synergies that you could have in a group like ours that is global to use the data globally because we're limited by the inability of sharing data among constituency borders, or even across the bank. And, and that is not a good development. So I think we need a very clear work of regulators to make that data aspect, which is gonna be the new thing in banking, more available you know, and have such a broad reach as our services themselves have, because there's no point to allow global services but to ring fence the data, because then you just can't provide good data-based quality services. And so regulators need to address the issue of data sharing And they also need to address the second issue that is around data that is a level playing field between banks and the data they have and large FinTech companies. Uh, The new European regulation kind of opens up data that banks have uh, for consumer purposes uh, for everyone, but we haven't seen the same opening of data that are available in other firms uh, for banks. And that's something that needs to be addressed. Uh, There needs to be a level playing field and every time there isn't a level playing field you have distortions and that's not good for banking either.
0: Well I wanted to ask you about the the future of the industry and I think probably the issue you've just alluded to is a really important one at the heart of that and it's certainly one at the IF that we've focused a lot where we see developments like open banking that provide these asymmetrical approaches to data flows that I can tell my bank go and share my data with a tech firm I can't tell the tech firm to share that the data they have with the bank and it puts potentially some firms in a unique position of being able to marry together my financial life with everything else uh, about me. So I, I think it's a really important point you emphasise there and it's one that we need to keep pursuing. Perhaps if I could ask you more more broadly against this digitalisation process and some of the other current trends we're seeing, the increased focus on sustainability, some of the regulatory and political postures around the world. How do you see the future of the industry and, and what are the big issues
1: and questions that you see ahead? I think there is uh, the key issue that it will be driving banking in the next few years uh, will be growth and size. We're located in a small country, Switzerland, where a lot of the sort of intuition is that small is beautiful. At the same time as a global bank, you know, large is necessary. Why is large necessary? Gross and size have become increasingly important, uh, in my view, in the banking industry, because with increasing automation and digitalization, the marginal costs of banking services tend towards zero. We're clearly seeing that margin erosion almost in every part of the business. And at the same time, the fixed costs remain high or even go up with the introduction of regulation, uh, large IT investment needs that are there for banks. And in a world where marginal costs tend to zero, uh, the size, the optimal size of a bank goes up. Uh, At the same time, that runs completely counter uh, to the re-regulation of the financial industry after the great uh, financial crisis in the sense that uh, basically there is specific regulation, a lot more intrusive for globally or nationally systemically relevant bank, where basically limits to the size of banks have been introduced as a measure to prevent exposures. And that is putting uh, the global banks in particular, the, the, the GSEFI uh, group of banks, into a uh, difficult spell And that difficulty is, I think, accelerated by uh, two major uh, conditions. The first one is, in the U.S., you face a deep, liquid, and large market. So U.S. banks have size because the U.S. market has size. And the same is true for China. Uh, Chinese banks have size because the Chinese home market has size. For European banks, that is not the case. Europe is a set of fragmented markets. Switzerland isn't even a member of the EU. Uh, The UK has just left, uh, so there's more fragmentation to come there. And within the EU, this is a fragmented set of 27 markets with 27 regulators, 27 uh, rules of money laundering, uh, anti-money laundering, uh, 27 sets of rules for resolution. And, you know, as if that were not enough, there's a 28th regulator on top. And you wouldn't design an efficient system uh, like that if you were to start with it. So the whole program that European banks need in order to be able to compete with Asian banks or with US banks on size is to have a sizable home market. And that's where I think the important programs by the commission come in on banking union, on capital market union. And that's not something we need to evolve over the next 20 years. It's something we need now because we're now having to compete with major players uh, in various jurisdictions. And I don't see that dynamic. So, you know, European banks have to try double hard in order to, uh, you know, remain competitive because they are lagging the size that U.S. and Asian banks have and they're lagging the depths of the whole market and the integration of that market. Over time, this will come, but at the moment, I think that uh, where size is important, uh, the Europeans are somewhat hampered by a fear of size and by a lack of size at the same time. And I think actually, and you know, I've, I've, I've talked about that a lot in the past, that Europe it needs to really have a big bang towards banking union and create that almost as a, as the United States did uh, with the National Banking Act as a banking union at the European level where you get a European license as a bank. you know. And, and the second big thing that I, I think will determine banking is not just a competition about size it's also sustainable finance and that's an area where i think uh, you know whilst size works against the european firms the sustainable finance part actually works in their favor because you know it took the us administration uh, a long time with the new administration to join or rejoin the global compact and uh, you know the paris goals european uh, legislators have been the first through the door with a sustainability uh, agenda, with a nomenclature, with a a sort of rules and regulation under which these uh, can evolve. And so I guess in football, we have the European football championship at the moment, you would call it 1-1. So a draw, the US and others lead on size, Europe somewhat leads on the sustainability agenda, and both will play out as important determinants for banks to be successful.
0: Well I think that the size point you made also perhaps we want to overlay that with the, the platformization of finance. And and you alluded earlier that, you know, you don't just want to be a product provider, you don't just want to be selling on somebody else's platform, which is the scenario that I think a lot of banks are facing into. Uh, we had Kanjido Brusher of Vitao last year talk about this this dilemma of how you find your, your space in this world. But you also remind me there of a, a comment that Hugh Van Stinas of UBS has made that the pandemic and the digitalization with it has accelerated a sense of, of winner take all or I think as he, he's framed it winner take most, uh, and it's perhaps another impetus for the consolidation that you, uh, I think, allude to, but also this, this sense of how we face into the fintech market and, uh, and market dynamics. And I think we've seen a shift from the much trumpeted unbundling of financial services, that new small fintech startups were going to come along and unbundle and bring new competition. And we also perhaps need to look into what the big tech firms are doing more now, and it's perhaps more a case of rebundling slithers of financial services with their offerings from elsewhere. And I think that this you know, perhaps throws up some new questions for us around competition and concentration. I'm interested in how you see this part playing out.
1: Well, so uh, look, I mean, banks for a long time uh, have been criticized for not being digital enough. Actually, banking traditionally is a technology business. Uh, most of the transactions we do are technology driven. Uh, We operate platforms, whether it's in the investment bank, whether it's our uh, NEO platform that we use for, for that, or whether it's our UBS platform we use in asset management or in wealth management. Most of these investment solutions take place on platforms. And What I talked about in Europe is the inability of us, for example, as UBS to use our Frankfurt platform for the business throughout the entire union. Because of banking regulation, you need to have segmented platforms. now. This this risk of banks being in permafrost about technology, uh, in my view, uh, is gone. Banks now get heat from above and they get heat from below. Uh, the heat from below, we're kind of useful for longer because that's the fintech space. We actually ourselves are investing massively into fintech solutions. Uh, we're trying to be part of uh, you know these various fintech um, solutions that are uh, taking place in various constituency. Very early on, we had our operation in London and in Singapore be part of uh, the fintech startup scene there. Uh, You know, the regulators created local environments and local fintech landscapes uh, in which we as UBS operated and collaborated with the most successful. And then there's the big techs who give us heat from above. Heat from above because they have much more size, they're trusted by the same clients as uh, with their data, and they're the natural go-to Uh, for many clients when it comes to purchases, not of financial services, but of goods uh, and other services. And so the financial industry really has to navigate this more complex environment now between big tech, uh, between fintech, between, you know, neobanks, and a more complicated environment. And I think many of the uh, established banks are doing quite well, In doing that but there will be a disintermediation that will set in because not everyone that will try will be successful so my expectation given also the drive for size is that the banking industry over the next decade or two will massively consolidate at the global level and it will also see its product chains and its its service chains disintermediated Uh, fintechs have already uh, had the strategy that they look for the part of your supply chain, but they can provide most value added, and they don't take that over from you, but they become the partner of you and of everyone else in providing a very specialized part of your supply chain at a more agile and at a more uh, lower cost. And so banks just need to continue to have an open mind. I think we need to also invest massively uh, in these platforms. And on top of most of these developments, uh, you really need to be able to create the revenues that allow you to invest. Investing into technology in the future will be a key distinguisher between banks that either by direct investing the money into their operations or by using it to acquire bolt-on solutions that are important for their business, that will be a key distinguisher between those successful in the consolidation process and those that have more troubles.
0: In the the realizing the digital promise work we did with Deloitte, we saw a lot of, of, I think, a very similar theme in this notion of the, the criticality of bank partnerships with fintechs but also some of the challenges to that on both sides and that the fintechs have not always been enterprise ready, have not always been scalable, have not always understood the risk conscious and regulated culture of a bank. The banks from their point have not always had the agility or the uh, the cloud infrastructure in, in working with the fintech. So there is a a shared onus, I think, in, in progressing on that, but it's a really important point you underline. Could I... Extend on, on what you've described there slightly and, and talk a bit about the policy and regulatory responses to this emerging concentration and, and some of the competition issues and the uh, imminent consolidation, perhaps, or the, the sense of, uh, of a winner-take-most environment. Do you think financial regulators should be concerned about the potential for some of these competition issues, perhaps, to spill into the stability and consumer protection issues that
1: they seem to be more concerned with? I think they are concerned about that already, and uh, I think they, they uh, follow it very closely. Financial stability concerns, in my view, are uh, there, but they're more related to new products and new investment solutions that come from the digital side. You know, we have, as a wealth and asset manager, we're very open to digital assets and solutions around digital assets. But, of course, there is the asset side of that and the investment and store of value side. But then there's also a lot of things happening on the crypto side, where basically, uh, you know, if you compare it to the past in banking, one of the key features of some of these tokens uh, and cryptocurrencies is that the ultimate beneficial owner of those transfers is unknown. I think the central banks are very concerned about that, and my expectation is that they will insist that the only anonymous means of payment that is provided is cash by central banks. They will not give those uh, revenues and also the seniorage from producing the only anonymous means of payment to digital providers. Uh, it would also not be warranted against the background that basically the government and the state has the monopoly over pricing of what is used in transaction as the ultimate uh, store of value, and that continues for me to be cash and, and central bank money. Uh, central banks will experiment uh, with central bank currencies themselves, uh, and go into that direction. And in many cases, the central banks are at the same time the regulators, or regulators and central banks work together to secure financial stability. And that will mean that, for, in my reading, that they will make sure that financial solutions and digital currencies, cryptocurrencies, token coins, none of these that provide in themselves stability inherent stability risk uh, will be positively endorsed by them anything that will allow sort of financing of transactions where the AML KYC framework of banks, so know your client, know the ultimate beneficial owner, anything that allows you to undermine these frameworks will be seen by them as something that will not be tolerated and will be very, very tightly controlled. At the same time, they need to move from cash payments to digital payments and some central banks like Sweden are already, or, or China, Already experimenting with that. But I do think that the major application of digital currencies uh, will be around wholesale solutions, where basically uh, the central banks will provide new ways of accessing central bank liquidity in a wholesale payment framework. And it will be much less about retail payments because disintermediating banks in their retail payment function, first, the need for it is much less obvious because there exists a whole biotope of solutions that is efficient and used by clients according to their preference. And second, uh, I think central banks uh, really are focusing on what is their core remit and the cash cycle produces a lot of costs for the government and for you know the public at large where by moving that to digital you can save a lot of money by moving digital payments in for for analog payments and that's I think the area where banks where central banks will be concentrating on. And on the financial stability side, uh, I do think they will be quite conservative because they will only allow uh, tried and tested concepts to go live and to go broad. And uh, some of the solutions we've seen in an experimental stage are tightly controlled by central banks and observed by them. I think you will see see that continue. But we ourselves are working on wholesale solutions with central banks, uh, which I think are a very promising part for banks in order to allow for much more efficient interaction. Because once you have this wholesale solution, the finality of payment is only required if you check out of that system. Everything that is within the system and transacted between counterparties doesn't always need clearing and settlement in real money. As long as it's generally accepted as a means of payment within the participating bank, you can move these tokens back and forth, and they're a very efficient way to settle these payments if they're linked in in finality to central bank money. And I think we'll see much more of that, more interaction between the payment cycle that banks provide and the payment backbones that large value payment systems, for example, like RTGS systems or target systems provide in the European context, for example.
0: I wanted to ask you more about CBDCs, but I think you've actually covered it beautifully already. So I might instead see if we can conclude by talking a bit about cross-border connectivity. Uh, And you alluded earlier about some of the discrepancies in how you onboard customers across different jurisdictions, some of the complications that that brings. We've certainly had the sense that, that against the backdrop of the acceleration of digitalization around the world, we have nevertheless seen some of the digital divides increasing around the world with some governments limiting market access for digital services restrictions on data transfers across borders, in a lot of cases forcing foreign companies to invest in duplicate servers in-country and the like. We've sometimes talked about whether there's a need for a digital Bretton Woods, and I see this has had a considerable focus in the G7 recently also. Interested in your, your thoughts, what you see as perhaps the most pressing topics to resolve at the international level to help support connectivity, to help enable the global economy to reap the benefits of digital?
1: Yeah, look, I already said it before, ultimately all financial institutions are inherently data businesses. You need to know the data and uh, the preferences of your clients and AI, big data and ecosystems uh, will be game changers in, in this direction. I think the, the most important game changer that we've seen in banking over recent years is the ability to no longer have digital solutions on your own computer systems, but to be able to put them on a the cloud and cloudification of all of what we do and the interoperability and the exchangeability of those systems once cloudified, I think are an important way to roll them out across constituencies at close to zero cost. Now, that is only possible if you can share data. And you know, coming out of Switzerland, uh, Switzerland has been particular sensitive to share data internationally. There are relatively high bars defined, but it's not just Switzerland. If you look at China, Uh, If you look at other countries, it's very hard to share data outside the constituency, even within the same group. And that creates borders and inefficiencies within the system with data localization really becoming a major issue. And data localization has been spreading around the globe and it's undermining the efficiency and the economic opportunities that bank can take in the digital economy. So yes, I do think we need something like a global agreement on collaboration, on data. And what we've seen, whether it's the European standards or what other constituencies are working on is standards for their own jurisdiction. And those standards then will emerge and mushroom, but they will be incomparable. And then we need a second round to harmonize these standards and bring them to more interoperability. That's already a very inefficient way to go around it because in the meanwhile, once we do that, It will undermine trade and economic growth. It will slow down the digital ecosystem and it will block the advantages of cloud computing. And in my view, it will undermine also our efficiency in fraud prevention and cybersecurity and any best practices there. So don't let us do that. Don't let us build systems and then harmonize. Let's build a global system to start with and then roll that out globally. It's been done uh, in other areas uh, of the global economy. Most of the challenges we today face, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's sustainability or uh, the whole carbon transformation, they're global challenges. Uh, We can no longer believe, and we've seen that in the recent weeks, that local solutions for global problems cause massive inefficiencies. Countries closing borders, shutting down trade, all of that comes at a massive cost. And I think you uh, you, you should learn the lessons from the current pandemic, Had we had a very efficient international health organization and framework, which we do have in finance, thanks to the Bretton Woods organizations you mentioned, had we had that instead of finance space in health space, we would have fared different. We would have had meetings like the IMF meetings in Geneva with all of the health authorities coordinating from the start, as opposed to being secretive and exclusive and le- seeking local or country solutions or even regional solutions within countries, which we've seen in my domestic constituency in, in Germany. And, and that is very inefficient. And it confuses clients, it confuses consumers. And so we should, as financial institutions, and I think the IAF will be a perfect uh, home for that, we should push for a global system to be designed from scratch and for that to be rolled out with maximum consistency. There might be local adaptations. But they have to be contained to something that might cater for local jurisdictional transitions so that we might not end up with the same system initially because we have to change laws as we roll it out. But we definitely shouldn't start with local systems and then trying to add them up and make them interoperable at the global level. So I'm I'm quite concerned about this balkanization of the digital uh, and the data space because it's the opposite of what actually the digital opportunities can offer.
0: Piyush Gupta spoke in one of our events recently about the splinter net, as he termed it, that you're alluding to. I'm I'm really glad you mentioned the word interoperability. And I think it's a a really important piece, at least for the short term, that realistically, we're not going to have a singular data privacy, data governance standard around the world. But it's really important that we make sure those different regional standards are interoperable. And the the APEC Financial Forum, I think, has done a a lot of tremendous work in helping to promote that. Axel, it's been great speaking with you. We've covered a lot of ground and I'm going to Make an effort at trying to just summarise or highlight some of the key points you've run through. I I don't know that I'll do it justice. Uh, I liked where you started about the investments that that had been made prior to the pandemic and how that ultimately has really paid dividends. That those have helped to support the work from home transition, but also what you talked about in supporting clients. And I think it was really important this notion of being able to support wealth clients in their own living rooms, having a digital front end that meets their expectations. That is a point of of differentiator, uh, and we link that to, to data. Also the point you made that you were impressed at how quickly the payment by cash went out of fashion. And it does remind me that I think there were a lot of really great policy reactions early in the pandemic. We saw countries like the UK and Austria and Hungary and Croatia were all very quick to to raise their contactless payment limits which was a great measure and, uh, and a very swift one. We talked about the asymmetrical data regimes, uh, but also you raised the point of these cross-border discrepancies in onboarding and where you just made the point about the challenges in sharing data, even within the group. I know you hosted Jay Collins from City in an IIF event recently, and, and Jay's also made this point previously too, that the the bad guys know exactly where the frictions are in the system. They know exactly where we can't share data in trying to chase down the bad guys to try to block financial crime, and they can exploit that. And uh, and we as a system uh, with law enforcement and with regulators need to remove the frictions we have and, and get better at that. Really important point you made about the, the the trend in the marginal cost, the marginal cost going down, what that does to the optimal size of a bank, how that fits with the too big to fail impetus and what that means for the future of the industry and and in relating that also with what we see in the development of the big techs. Uh, and I think encouraging the point you made there that the regulatory community is is conscious of this at the same time that we're expecting to see uh, overhauls of of bank supply and product chains uh, and areas of disintermediation. You made the point of, of cloudification and AI as a game changer. That really relates to a lot of what we saw in the, the report we did with Deloitte recently on realising the digital promise. We identified those two as well as digital identity really as being the three foundational technologies of the new economy. And I think also the the point you made about CBDCs and the appeal and the, the use case and the value of those being much more in the wholesale settlement sector. Uh, but I think also encouraging what you're able to share that uh, the regulatory community, the central bank community is increasingly recognising that as well. Um, and I think that's that's uh, encouraging for us going forward also. So Axel, it's been great to, to talk with you. You've, you've covered a lot of ground with us and, and provided a lot of great insights. Really appreciate that. And thank you for being with us on FRT.
1: Thank you. And you did real well in summarising it. Thank you, Brad.
0: And looking ahead on FRT beyond our 100th episode today, uh, we're actually going to continue the theme of celebrating that century. We're going to go back to where we started. We're going to re- have the return of our first guest, Scotiabank Chief Risk Officer Daniel Moore. And at that time, he talked about trying to transform the culture of the risk function, moving away from decisions based on traditional orthodoxies and more to being a data-driven organisation. We're going to pick up with him a couple of years on and see how that's progressed. We're also going to look further at our Spotlight on Inclusion series, where we'll speak with Chad Harper of Visa and Amin Kerry of CIB in Egypt, And we'll also pick up the IIF Data Ethics Charter with Jade Haar of National Australia Bank and David Hardoon of the Union Bank of the Philippines. So please stay safe and join us for those upcoming episodes. I'm Brad Carr. Thanks for listening on FRT.